0: on today's podcast we'll be joined by the shark whisperer that's christina zanato she's an absolute legend she's a professional diver a shark expert and founder of people of the water she's here to tell us all about her incredible relationship with reef sharks in the bahamas and her long-standing campaign for marine conservation all that and more is coming up on this episode of shark week the podcast I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before, or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. And joining us today is the shark whisperer herself, Christina Zanato. Hi, Christina. How are you doing?
1: Hi, look, doing good. Thank you.
0: Very good. So, tell us about yourself because you are one of the more interesting people in the shark world.
1: Oh my goodness, where do I start? Uh, I am originally from Italy. I grew up in Central Africa in the rainforest, amongst gorillas and crocodiles and all of that. So I had always a passion for the outdoors and, believe it or not, an uh, attraction to the ocean, thanks to my family. And then at age 22, I moved uh, to Grand Bahama Island, where I still reside uh, a few years later, just, just a tad. And uh, I... Basically had a childhood dream to be an underwater scuba ranger to protect the oceans and have sharks for friends, which obviously everybody was just kind of like, yeah, no. And instead, I landed here, did my open water course and find out that it was quite possible to make it uh, come true. Fast forward 28 years later, I actually have developed, together with my mentor, Ben Rose, an interactive shark dive with Caribbean reef sharks.
0: Now, one of the things that you're extremely well known for is connected to that interactive experience that you've set up. So um, for those who haven't seen Christina work, uh, she's really well known for dealing with Very up close and personal with Caribbean reef sharks. And uh, you've probably seen photos of her somewhere because they're very widely distributed of exhibiting tonic immobility. For those who are listening who may not be completely familiar with the terminology, when we talk about tonic immobility, we're referring to uh, the behavior where a shark, uh, due to stimulus, whether it be um, from a person or potentially from an interaction with another shark, we're not entirely sure exactly why it happens, but the shark will essentially almost not necessarily go to sleep but it'll behave almost as if it were you know dead like everything is still working it's still breathing but it just literally goes immobile which is why we call it tonic immobility and it's a very curious behavior Um, usually doesn't last for all that long um, and it's been noticed across many different species, and it's been postulated that it could be something to do with uh, natural breeding behaviours, or perhaps a predator avoidance type behaviour, but we've recently seen it uh, being done by divers, uh, particularly on TV shows, where they'll manipulate the ampullae of Lorenzini that cover the the snout of a shark, usually with gloved hands, and by overstimulating that area, it'll it'll make the shark go into, into tonic. Now, I want to put this the right way, so why don't you put it in your word? Christina because uh, your relationship with the sharks is very special.
1: Yes. So what I'm known for is to have sharks relax in my lap. Now, in the in the in the beginning, we used to call it tonic immobility. I kind of like moved away from that okay. because as I was reading about tonic immobility, it is a natural reactions of animals, not only sharks, to threat. And stress is like they play dead. Um, with the Caribbean reef sharks is I have a selected group of females who literally come into my stomach, stop swimming, then naturally sink down on the ocean floor, and then sit there and allow me to pat them uh, with with my hands or give them a kiss. Now. For the public, I wear a protective suit. Uh, It's a chainmail, which I call the barrier that drops the barrier between me and the sharks. I only do this with this selected group of sharks that don't go around the world trying to, you know, handle and put to sleep Uh, sharks that I don't know. And uh, it is very much a choice of the shark to come in and allow me to do that. And some of them can stay there for 40, 50 minutes if they want to.
0: Why did you go to Bahamas and why is it reef sharks you like to work with?
1: I came to the Bahamas because I wanted to learn how to scuba dive, but any destinations that I originally picked, we're talking about 1994 in the travel agency, were not available. And so they actually so said- So it was just oh.
0: completely random.
1: Absolutely random. I, <laughs> I, they were like, oh, why don't you go? We have this place in the Bahamas. I was like, okay, all right, sure, I'll go. And when I came here and I did my open water checkout dives, they had sharks on the dives. Yeah. And so I as an absolute awe. I was like, oh, yeah, you have sharks in the water. And, um, you know, fast forward 30 years later, it's it's really cool because the, the Bahamians and the instructors turned around and said, kind of, of course we have sharks in the water, you dummy. You know, it was just like for them it's so natural. And so yeah. the, inter, the the presence of sharks was so natural and so accepted. So I had the opportunity to give it a try. And what I did is I took a job in a hotel that speaks five languages. And I said, oh, I'll stay here for a year, dive and, you know, get diving out of my system. <laughs> and that is where I sat. With Caribbean resharks it was because uh, a gentleman called Ben Rose, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, he had started. Uh, somewhat of a dive with the Caribbean race sharks and so I met him in my infancy of my diving and I started diving with him and following what it was doing and that's where where basically the interaction was built with these animals from uh, fast forward you know hindsight 30 years later it's obviously also a reasonable size of shark mm. we're still welcoming an animal into our lap uh, when we go to Tiger Beach we interact with tiger sharks that are 14, 16, 16 Foot long, um, I was a different animal, a different behavior. We still can uh, push them out of the way or interact with them, but I don't know if I will welcome a shark that has a three foot, you know, mouth span into my lap, and especially a tiger which behaves differently. So yeah. Caribbean becomes a suitable also as an animal to interact with.
0: Whose idea was it to start the the chain mail and the hand feeding, and you know the tonic, which is really not tonic, um, but you know, feeding type behavior.
1: Um, the the chain suit was first. Uh, basically created by Ron and Valerie Taylor uh, to be able to interact as videographers with uh, sharks out in Australia, especially sharks that were doing the traditional uh, chumballs, So like a lot of agitated animals with dolphins and sharks and birds going after these giant bait balls. So these groups of like small fish and being able to be in the middle of it, you know, having the arms stretched out, holding onto the camera without having to worry about where their feet were, where their ankles were, or anything like that. Uh, The feeding was an accident. Uh, Ben was out there fish feeding. And uh, basically, there was this huge cloud of little fish. But all of a sudden, the the, the fish parted like the curtains of a theater. (laughs) And he had a Caribbean reef shark in front of him. I wish he was here to tell the story. And so he had the fish in his hand, and he looked at the shark, and he looked at the fish, and naturally, he tossed the fish out of his hand and so the shark bit the fish and swam away and then he came back around and kind of like look at ben going do you have any more of that <laughs> and and so ben surfaced and he was just like whoa i just fed a shark and from there was about two years of conversations not only on the back of the boat about how to do this in a, a considerate manner in a safe manner and uh, respecting some of the guidelines that I still basically follow when doing interactive shark dives. So that's how it built up. It was like a series of like, wow. The touch, same thing. It was a shark that came in way too fast. And Ben, again, <laughs> went to deflector, just basically put his hand out and went to deflector. Instead of deflecting her, she basically paused for two heartbeats and started sliding down his hand. And when we saw that, that was literally, you know, wow, did you see that? Yeah. And so in the beginning, if you were to look at videos of me back in 96, 97, 95, you will see that actually I was definitely trying a lot of ampullized stimulation. We (laughs) thought that it was just all this like frantic rubbing of the ampullae to put them to sleep. And now, fast forward 28 years later, if you actually look at some of the videos, you'll see that the shark just come in and I just sometimes just gently just tap her on the top of the head. Sometimes I don't even pat her.
0: I mean, you'll be the first to admit that you get bit quite often. Is that correct?
1: I'm very reluctant into... Addressing this without putting the context, and the context is we are working directly with the sharks. We are handling. I'm reaching into their mouth. I'm also handing them fish, right? So yep. uh, if you work um, long enough, eventually you will have an accidental bite. But I also want people, maybe if they have the opportunity to watch a video, is a stand, me standing in the middle of this group of sharks with fish in my hands, and the shark just swimming uh, around me without just not biting, 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 biting. But yes, yeah. chamois is necessary. The same way you would use a mitten to take a, a you know a pot out of the oven.
0: You've also commented that you know uh, that your sharks are um, you know attuned to you, and you've remarked that over the years you've seen that now you don't even need to really overstimulate them; they'll just come in. So that leads me to um, ask you about the the personalities of those sharks. And is it fair that we give a shark a personality? And I I don't like to anthropomorphize anything, but um, is it fair to say that they do have personalities?
1: Yes, very fair to say they have personalities. And, and then that brings us, I think, further into the conversations about sometimes when people ask, oh, why, you know, sharks do this or sharks do that. It's just not even just the species. Uh, they have individual personalities. And it's not anthropomorphizing. It's basically saying one shark is more direct. Some sharks learn mm. faster than others. Some learn really slow. <laughs> yeah. Like some of us, some have higher associative thoughts. Uh, some have more instinctual connections. Um, some are shy. Some are dominant. So absolutely, I and it differs from one of the uh, of each of the girls and boys that are down there. Absolutely, I don't think that is actually wrong to say. And it, actually, there's a paper that came out saying. You know, finally, after 25 years of you and I observing them in a while, say, hey, sharks have personality. Yeah. Finally, paper came out saying, oh, wow, we found out sharks have personalities. <laughs> <laughs> I've
0: always found it hard, though, to to talk about a shark's personality because inevitably, people then ask, as you say, about their behavior. And then it's like, are they angry? Are they mad? Are they coming for us? Are they you know, all these other things that we want to layer on top of that. And I find it so hard to, um, to relate that, yes, we might be able to identify some human emotions with some of their behaviors, but that doesn't mean that they have a, a human intellect or personality or, you know, um, intellectual makeup. I mean, just because they might seem more shy or more bold doesn't mean they're calculatingly thinking about, you know, how many humans they want to eat.
1: No, and and that is a thing they are not humans, so we can associate their behavior to a human behavior um, sometimes to do people understand I associate it to a different land uh, animal, but sharks are so unique uh, with their seven almost eight discovered senses. their uh, cognitive learning is completely different because there is an instinctual learning that Uh, Cannot overreden. And and that is what makes it actually interacting with sharks (laughs) one of the safest animals on this planet. You could not do what we do with sharks with certain other animals because their associative thought, their cognitive learning Mm. is much higher than their sensory system. I yeah. wouldn't even say they have human emotions. I would just say they have different kind of personalities. But uh, one thing and I and I say this with all my love, one of the things we're very lucky is uh, they have so much instinct and maybe not as much intellect. And so uh, I never seen a shark angry. I never seen yeah. a shark vengeful. I never seen a sharks retaliating and that is incredible. I really wish people understood. Sometimes when we talk about shark bites, people go, oh, that was vicious, that was aggressive, that was... It's like, well, no, that's how the shark has been designed by nature to act. Sometimes they'll come in, bite, shake, sever. It's not vicious. That's what nature has designed them to do. Uh, All they're doing is eating and going for their food. And to our eyes, yes, it's frightening. But it's their natural way, same as a cheetah grabs the antelope and tries to go for the neck.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it, you know, just because they might have personality doesn't mean they have emotion behind that, you know, personality and emotion can be completely separate concepts, especially in this type of context. Um, I am curious about sort of play behavior, like you say, you've never seen them angry or anything. But recently, uh, you might have seen a Joe and Laura Romero filmed poor Beagle Sharks, and it looked like they're actually kind of playing or perhaps even dueling for for space. And uh, that... It's an odd thing to see with that species. Have you seen that with the Caribbean reef sharks or the sharks that are in your area?
1: What I saw is the same behavior that sometimes I see through some of my girls. Is you, And I've seen that also with the bull sharks in Fiji. And is you'll have some more dominant sharks. And through body language, this is what I could discern, most likely hormonal secretions, which we can't discern unless we do a research, Uh, there's some sharks that basically will say, move out of the way, this is my space. And that's what I have noticed with the poor beagles. So Mm. there is definitely some way of a hierarchy and a communication between them.
0: Um, Do you think that shark diving changes shark behavior?
1: A little bit it does. I mean, let, let's face it, a little bit it does. It makes sharks actually less shy of divers
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, if, if you don't do shark dives. And that's the reason why shark diving was born. People wanted to see sharks and all the a sudden was like a tail riding away into the sunset. <laughs> it was like, I want to see sharks. It's like, well, you know, they're very afraid of bubbles and noise and all of that. So it reduces a little bit their, their fear, but it doesn't make them then uh, too intense towards the divers either. Yeah. What it doesn't change, which is really, really good, is their natural behaviors.
0: Do you think it's then uh, disingenuous for people? Like, like, there's absolutely 100% you know, shark divers out there specifically who you know, have a commercial interest in sharks who will kind of state that, hey, we're not doing anything towards changing their behavior. And they're citing those studies about you know, that relate to long-term natural behavior.
1: Well I like I said, I'm actually more on the side that we do affect their behavior.
0: yeah
1: I also don't believe we provision or feed meaning the amount of food that we bring down there occasionally is just so little that is more I consider more like a treat like a treat. Sure. I, I train my dogs and I give them a treat um, but saying across the board, no, absolutely we're not changing their behavior It's just like well I can show you videos of 30 years ago <laughs> and I can show you videos of now and just even like how the shark comes in to be pet oh yeah um change from 30 years ago and i recently had the experience of a shark that we never seen before and like as you know we recognize catalog photograph name all our sharks this girl came in and she's very recognized she's missing her tail she's cut off by a propeller but she's doing good she's doing great and she literally came some straight into my stomach and there are uh, studies in which it says well the uh, Characteristics, some of the characteristics of the mother are transferred down to the offsprings. So, why in not real. have it, Yeah, why have not we're 30 years into it, right? Caribbean Reef sharks, 15 to 18 years, uh, 18 years lifespan. Why some of these girls may not manifest a less, a more comfortable relation with me in this case, That's transferred down by the mother?
0: That- that's crazy. Um, like, for people listening, uh, there is no maternal care um, for sharks. They, you know, a, a, a female shark will pop and those pups are left to fend on their own. And usually the female will put them in a place where those pups can have the best chance of growing up. But there's no learned behavior from the adult. And you're suggesting that there's a, a learned behavior inherent in the DNA. Is that right? I'm
1: not suggesting this paper that. There's a Bimini Shark Lab paper that just recently came up short of two months ago that says that they actually, because they can recognize the mothers and then the offsprings are through DNA, that they recognize that actually some of the behavioral characteristics of the mothers has transferred into the offsprings so through, through birth.
0: That must be incredibly flattering for you
1: it's pretty impressive that actually (laughs) because like like you said there's no parental care so there's no really like hey you watch me how i hunt this this antelope like a cheetah will do right however at the same time you know we know that sharks communicate through hormonal secretion so they could be the some of these new sharks that come in also feel something out of the shiver that is around me and Mm -hmm. so allows them to do um, Some more interactive, but saying that we don't affect it is like if we didn't affect it, I will never be able to approach a shark. And she kept coming in. And usually, mm. a brand new small shark like that is not so trustworthy of, of my presence. I'm too big, too noisy, too bubbly. Sure. It takes them a long time. So, I do believe there is a something.
0: I think it's pretty. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool to think that there's sharks in out there imprinting on their offspring the uh, the image. Of uh, Christina Zanardo sitting down there in chain <laughs> I don't mail, know if they do that. ready to. I uh, know they don't, but just in my <laughs> fantasy of my mind here, I'm just thinking, you know, they're, they're just cruising around looking for that odd object that they just remember like a dream, <laughs> and <then> there <laughs> it is. That is pretty amazing. Um, but I guess it does. I mean, there's precedent for it, right? I mean, sharks have you know, ingrained, um. <laughs> migratory patterns in them that they, you know, that they just have, just like, you know, many creatures do. So it makes sense. So I'm glad that research is coming out. That's pretty fascinating.
1: Dr. Eugenie Clark, 1957, actually demonstrated that sharks could count and sharks that actually are remembered to push a certain buttons to open the gate to get some food after six months of a break. Hmm. So not only to learn how to count, and she did it by basically tap, you know, sounds, tap, 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 you know, and uh, she taught them to do one tap, you do this, two taps, you do that, three taps, you yeah. do that. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's called The Lady and the Shark. So they have memories. They have associative thoughts. They have capability of connecting things, and I don't see why not some of it cannot be transferred also through DNA. Yeah.
0: Now, your operation out there in Bahamas is is now pretty iconic. It's a, a huge tourist draw. It's a, a destination event for many people. I know that um, Grand Bahama is, uh, you know, a location that many cruise ships come by and a lot of divers want to go to. Um, and I've been working in and out of the Bahamas for 15 years now. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the tourism industry out there because um, one of the things that kind of is challenging to wrap my head around sometimes is this whole argument that sharks are worth more alive than dead which is you know not up for debate they certainly are Um, but there's been some pretty fantastic numbers attributed to the actual value of each shark or to the uh, to the industry in general Um, what are the numbers on Bahamas now are you familiar with those as far as what the shark diving industry is worth to the country?
1: Pre-COVID, because right now, obviously, we're trying to catch up again, sure. we were talking about $120 million a year yep. in a shark industry alone, uh, which means that does not include flights, food, accommodations, souvenirs, additional uh, attractions that these people could actually complete. And then there was about uh, $73 millions that were brought in by the filming industry. Uh, mm-hmm. Shark Week being one of them, uh, and then there is another thirty million more or less brought in by the research industry. So people that come to this healthy population of sharks and want to learn something, and they have forty species variety to which to apply their uh, studies. And the Bahamas pretty readily available in very mm. much a unique congregations. So those are big numbers, way yeah. bigger than a fishing industry could ever achieve.
0: Oh, absolutely. How does that? How does that money work in the Bahamas? I mean, you've lived there for so long. Um, where does it trickle down to? Does it benefit the community in general? Is it sort of a certain number of operators that benefit the most from it? It's a fairly staggering amount of money.
1: So, uh, the money, uh, the, um, if the money is spent within the community, meaning using Bahamian operators, Bahamian-run liverboards. Uh, staying in the islands, using the people that live and work here, the money goes directly into the economy of the Bahamas.
0: Got it. The money within that study is money that's actually um, physically landing and being spent in Bahamas. You're saying that there's a pool that's much larger that could be uh, further benefiting Bahamas but is going offshore.
1: Yes. So the money from the study comes directly from what was uh, uh, extrapolated and calculated that has landed in the Bahamas. And so within that, uh, the Bahamians and the Bahamian uh, country uh, benefit from it. I do believe there is a, a bigger pool yeah. of money that is coming in from the outside that cannot be really evaluated. So for me, is the, the shark diving industry has value, for the life of sharks, when the people that are protecting the sharks, which are the Bahamians in this case, or it could be like Palau in another case, or Fiji in a third case, is when they do benefit from this protection and mm-hmm. they financially see positive results of seeing that they have employment into the diving industry rather than having to be fishers.
0: Yeah, and, and that
1: is what a lot of my work has been—is educating Bahamians year yeah. after year after year into the diving industry.
0: I mean, when you walk into the Bahamas airport, you know there's a great big photo of Christina Zanato, much larger than life, up on the wall, and it's amazing. I mean, you're, you're holding a shark, and it's something that people definitely see. And they're like, "Wow, we need to go see that." But the, the flip side of that is the other side of media attention, and especially when we get an incident that might happen in Bahamas or elsewhere. Where there's a person that gets bitten or even killed in some instances, um, it's a completely random thing and very rare. But when it does happen, obviously the media just goes Whoo, and focuses on that event. How do you see that affect, you know, the the local shark industry? And is there something that we or the media could be doing better?
1: I do worry when I see that uh, increase of focus attention because it is unbalanced. Uh, one of the things that, if you think about it, we, if, there's, if there's a one-shark incident in the Bahamas, it makes it all the way to Australia. It does have a negative effect, especially because when it gets publicized as the Bahamas and mm-hmm. it has no details, uh, sometimes details are hard to come, yeah. right? And a lot of it is um, I'm misunderstood. People say I'm predictable. I'm like, no, it's just misunderstood. We do not really understand yet how they work, how they interact, how they behave, Um, what is the trigger. And so all this attention sometimes I think is going to be um, not positive because all it does is reinforces a negative perception that is already based on um, lack of information.
0: And they've perhaps gone to a place that is not fully set up for shark operations and taken some information they've been given about a different location extrapolated that information and thought, oh, I can go swim with the sharks that might be in this area. You know, is there something that could be done, you know, in the Bahamas or elsewhere to mitigate that a bit better? Because it seems that the people who, at least in some of these instances, are having negative shark interactions probably just shouldn't have been there to start with.
1: Well, the issue is actually uh, two of them that just happened in, um, yeah. in the last couple of years in the Bahamas were not even related with shark diving activities or any kind of shark activities. So it was just totally water-related activities, which brings us back to we're kind of like entering their world. Uh, and so that's why I usually say unless I see a shark coming out of the water, dragging you back in the water to bite you, I will not call in an attack. Yeah. But what could be done better is, I think, and that has to come with education as part of the work, obviously, that I've been trying to do. I've been part of counseling uh, groups in many parts of the world. I even flew to Mexico. Is uh, Sharks have a very, very high tolerance for our presence. They're actually, compared to what we're doing out there, very, very easy to deal with. Mm. Um, I think part of it is education of those people that um, now look at the sharks as just a source of income without paying attention at the shark as as a creature, as an animal. And I think yeah. that is part of the issue. Um, There's a lot of confusion. For me, there's a very much, a a very basic rule. And unfortunately, people go across the table and said, oh, feeding sharks teaches them to eat people. It's like, well, if you had done that, they will be eating every person that is off the back of the boat or goes to spearing because the fishers taught taught sharks what to do way, way, way before diving was born, Mm. about 40,000 years ago. But there is still a limit.
0: So how does a, a tourist who's visiting a location assess the um the safety of an operator like is there a guideline like for me I might say hey um you know don't go into the water with sharks unless you're specifically being guided there by an expert who knows what they're looking at that seems pretty simple to me and at least in one of these local uh, recent cases with the the young boy from the UK that was not the case you know they left a shark diving location where there were handlers there and they went and thought that the sharks would would be totally fine in a different location and they walked in without an expert with them and, and suffered the consequences, unfortunately. How should somebody look at that type of assessment?
1: I, that's difficult because technically, yeah. you know, like when I leave the site and other divers I show up, they go dive in there because there are the sharks that I just finished working with and everything is fine. So yeah. saying going there with that, we say yes, going there with an operator helps, but not necessarily means that when there's no operator that becomes automatically dangerous. I think parts of it is a personal responsibility, and understanding you're entering a, a, a wild world and the and appreciating the fact that it's so rare. So yesterday, I spent my day on the phone answering people's questions about the most recent incident and what should I do to avoid a shark attack? And yeah. I'm kind of like... Um, The universal answer, and I I said, if I could tell you, I would say, stay out of the water.
0: (laughs) But it is also,
1: how do you avoid a car accident? It's like, don't drive. But we do drive. And and the funny, the interesting part is there is a death for every 370 people that drive a vehicle in the United States of America. And there is a shark death for every 11.4 million people that go in the water in the United States of America within a year. Take a deep breath, right? Learn a little bit more, yes, about the environment. Understand, Ask some questions. You're going there, ask the operator, and then pretty much understand that it's less likely to have a negative shark encounter than to be hit by a lightning.
0: But with all this, you know, the, the negative media that might come out and everything else, do you... Um is there ever any concern from the Bahamas specifically? Because that's what you deal with. Is there concern from the authorities over there about having to, you know, crack down on some of these operations or to change behaviors or like? How did they deal with the PR from a, you know, you know government level?
1: Well, it is a concern. It is a concern as an operator with charts that eventually they'll just do across the board everything is forbidden instead of thinking yeah. that you know one size does not fit all. That we need to actually have more defined understanding of what's going on. And um, that was one of the reasons I'm hoping to eventually being able to contribute into the conversation because the conversation uh, might have to be had, but like, as you know, we might not want to have the government involved in it. I think it should be a, a conversation to have from the operators and understanding that um, sometimes refraining a little bit to uh, not make a buck actually in the long term it works better mm. and it goes back to really understanding sharks and appreciating how to do the interaction with them and how to leave the site after you're done with that
0: what do you think about the um uh, that video that came out on uh, new Smyrna? did you see that where the, the guys are dragging i believe it was a black tip up the beach and at first look it was pretty horrific someone saying hey take that back into the water and uh And they they refused to and they, you know, very poorly tried to put it down, you know, by putting a a knife through its brain. They did a very poor job of it. But that that video went everywhere.
1: Well, so that brings up to, I I did a post about that as well. And it Mm. brings up two very uh, different concepts. So going back into, from a legal standpoint, those two people did nothing wrong. Um, black tips are fishable you can actually catch them you can actually kill them and actually you can keep them as a even source of meat um, the concern that i have was their uh, attitude and behavior however and i know people are going to hate me for this because I cried. When I watched that video, I cried. I literally sat there and felt so bad for the shark. There is, again, we're going back into the the person that was on the phone might actually might have uh, instigated some of those reactions from the people by not addressing them in a correct way. And so it brings up then the psychological issues. One is uh, the fact that these guys felt it was okay to, you know, just shows so much disrespect for the animal rather than just saying, okay, we fished it, listen, this is our meat, kill the shark, done. Uh, it's what I fished, it's not a problem. But then it brings up the other issues as is how they were approached and that they were antagonized. And so that behavior maybe yeah. um, made them puff up a little bit their chest and have all this negative reaction.
0: Yeah. I will say that most most hunters that i know and that I've, I've dealt with are very respectful of the animals Absolutely. that they take you know you go out with hunters and they'll they'll spend a lot of time and care selecting their their prey and you know particularly i'm talking about land hunters here and you know they'll do everything they can to put that animal down as humanely as possible and that that's much more difficult when it comes to the ocean because you don't know when you put that line out what species you're going to be dragging in, it, what yes. type of fight it's going to put up. You have no way to immediately put it out of its misery. Um, but then also, there's this, as you say, kind of you know bravado or in this case machismo from these guys who maybe they were provoked, but they were, you know, catching a shark and being all brave and tough and stuff rather than thinking, oh, we caught, you know, our prey, we caught our food, let's put it down as quickly as we can. And they chose to taunt not only the person on the video, but the animal itself, which I think is absolutely reprehensible. But they were, they were within their rights. And maybe if there were like a, in the case of shark fishing, um, you know, a standardized way to uh, to put down a shark. You know, um, you know, we see videos of people, you know, clubbing them to death or shooting oh, them okay. and doing all these other things. Like, if there were, if we are to accept that there is a sustainable shark fishery of X species, whichever species that is, it's well managed and is is not at threat, which is a depleting list for sure. Um, if there was a standardized way that when people act outside that that framework, then they become a a target for uh, inhumane behaviour uh, towards those animals. I don't I don't think there's a perfect solution to that, and I don't think we're ever going to stop that type of fishing ever because there probably always will be a sustainable species that can be taken, um, but certainly the attitudes need to change. Um, do you? Yes. In your. I mean, I, I respect your practical outlook on all this, you know, as much of a, a shark lover and everything as you are, uh, do you accept that there may be a sustainable shark fishery of any species?
1: I'm on the fence with sustainable and shark fishing, uh, just because of nature of sharks, Uh uh, we don't really have a baseline for any of the ocean out there, but especially sharks, we've already proven how difficult they are reproducing. And how. And you need to think about all the other things that we're affecting them with. We're taking away some of the reproductive territories. We're taking away some other food. Um, there was a lot of bycatch. So I cannot really pronounce that there is. Uh, I agree yeah. with you. I think there's always going to be a shark fishing industry. Uh, in Florida, there's very much also a shark fishing catch and release and a lot of these fishers is actually uh, associated with maybe a researcher. So, the researchers actually have learned, okay, I'm going to talk to these guys because I know where to find these sharks. But then also they release them and I can also tag them and actually do more, for example, a post-mortality release rate to study to figure it out. Is this really sustainable or not? No. Or does it need to change?
0: I- before we go, I wanted to ask you about your organization, People of the Water, because I was just looking up at what you're doing lately. You know, we haven't chatted in a little while, and uh, I saw that you started this up. Tell me about it.
1: I started the People of the Water, which is a non-profit, um, in 2019. It's basically an extension of what I've been doing for the last 20 years. I base my, as you said, maybe we haven't really expressed, but like my my job is I make a living out of being a scuba diving professional. Um and I use a lot of that money to put into what is exploration, education, and conservation. Exploration meaning we go and explore things that we know or things that we don't know, including caves. I do quite a lot of work in cave diving. And then education, educate ourselves so they can educate others so that then we can promote conservation.
0: How can people help you with that? Because it sounds pretty cool.
1: Our, our, our webpage is basically pownonprofit.org. And on it, they can go and donate. The money is basically equally distributed between the work that we do in the exploration and the education part. Uh, the conservation part, what we do is we use the data and then provide everything, both from a sharks and caves point of view, to local NGOs like the Bahama National Trust, who has a direct communication with the um, bah- Bahamian government to promote more conservation policies.
0: That sounds awesome. And where can people find you personally when they choose to come to the Bahamas and come to Dive with you.
1: I am in Freeport, Grand Bahama, the most forgotten of the Bahamas. <laughs> and they can find me at uh, the, that's not NASA near Providence, Freeport, Grand Bahama, and they can find me at uh, zenato.com without an H, C R I S T I N A Z E N A T O.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, I can say from uh, extensive personal experience working with Christina, uh, she's definitely someone that you want to meet and go dive with. Um, Freeport is a very cool little place in the Bahamas and they've got great sharks and uh, there's, there's just a lot to see out there. So make sure you, you go check out that place whenever you go to Bahamas. And uh, Christina, thank you for joining us. Um, I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. We'll definitely have you back on to dive into some other stuff, but uh, I appreciate you joining us today on Shark Week, the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You know, say what you will about shark media, but it's very much a double-edged sword. I think Christina brought up some really good points there where we need to be very careful about the media that we put out and to be careful that our messaging is actually relevant to the topic that we're on. But I also have to look at the other side of it where sometimes... There's certain matters that need attention that won't get attention without some type of sensationalism about it. And I know that that sounds a little hypocritical coming from a podcast that does a lot of criticizing about media, uh, because a lot of what does come out is complete garbage. But I think there is something to be said for activists who use any technique possible to get their message heard. And We as shark divers, as shark lovers, as advocates, like whatever shark fishers, like whoever's listening to this, whatever bucket you fall into, we all care about this animal and the ocean. Most of us care about it being around for long enough, whether it be for sustainability, for your fishing, or for your viewing pleasure, or for your tourism operation, or whatever it might be. Most of us listening to this care about this animal in the ocean. And what we're not doing enough of is perpetuating the the media and tactics and money raising and everything else that goes along with it to perfectly provision for its protection in the future so that's it for today's shark week the podcast i hope you enjoyed christina zanato she's a a personal hero of mine and i'm stoked she joined us i want you to stay tuned to this feed as we continue to cover the sharkiest current topics talk to top scientists and experts and learn about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction thank you so much for listening to shark week the podcast be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more shark fun facts until next time i'm luke tipple i'll chat to you soon